This episode was made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to episode 144 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss Jacques Lobb's 1982 graphic novel and Bong Joon Ho's 2013 adaptation of the same name, Snowpiercer. So I have so many thoughts about this project. Um, I'm actually really excited to get into the movie. Uh, it's just so much to say, but I, I kind of want to try and keep this as segmented as possible because I think once we start talking about the movie, it's going to overshadow all the stuff I want to say about the about the graphic novel, too, which is also super important. So what I'm thinking we do is that we start a graphic novel, keep it sort of isolated, and then we move into the adaptation and we can do some comparison and contrast at that point. Um, and then I think we, we can put it in the show notes like where that appears on the timestamp so that if people don't want to listen to us just discuss the graphic novel, they can skip ahead. I mean, that sounds good to me. Uh, really itching to get to the movie. Uh, but I do, I, you know, I think it's going to be good to stop and, and talk about the graphic novel that it was based on because the art in the graphic novel, which is something, you know, with we, we haven't done a ton of graphic novels on the podcast. Right. Um, but doing doing them is fun because it's a visual medium in a way that it's a visual and literary medium in a way that, you know, not just writing and not just film can kind of bring out, bring about because you get these moments to sit and look at a frame, uh, which you don't get in a movie because it's so, you know, it progresses forward with, with, with or without you. Um, and in this situation, you can read the words, you can analyze the photos. And I think the art in this is really striking. Right. So the illustrator is Jean-Marc Rochette. And uh, he is actually behind the um, subsequent sequels that came out to this original publication, uh, which we should also say, um, first off, forgive my pronunciation, I'm going to try. Um, <laughs> the original uh, title for this was Les Transpersonnages, something like that. I don't know. You want to take a stab at it? I, uh, Transpersonnages, something okay. like that. One of the, one of the, somewhere between those two or outside, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, um, probably not. That was the original title, and then it was retitled Snowpiercer One: The Escape in uh, 1999, I think, when the sequel was written. Um, now, the writer of the sequel is uh, Olivier Bouquet. He took on the role as writer after Jacques Lob uh, passed away in 1990. And the uh, the sequels um, after after the escape was the Explorers and the Crossing, released in 1999 and 2000, and then a fourth volume uh, called Terminus was released in 2016, and then a prequel series is has been coming out, I think, or it's maybe completely published in 2019. So actively so, ongoing. Yeah, ongoing, but not with the original writer. Right. But the original illustrator still. Right. It does seem like a, a story that could continue on. Although, you know, especially with the with the movie, I really like how they how it sort of had a finite ending, uh, more ambiguous. But I want to talk about the, the ending of the, the book here because because yeah. we're talking book, you know, we'll get to talking about the movie. But I just wanted to say the artist Jean-Marc Rochette, 
the original comic artist wrote he drew a lot of those the drawings that were shown in the tail section early on oh, cool. of the children and stuff so he drew that stuff that ended up in the film so nice. i just needed to touch on that right now okay. while we're talking about the artist and i have no opinion on that or other than it's cool <laughs> i'm just saying i want to save all my opinions about the movie for later so the other thing i want to highlight is that from everything i was seeing this is a really important uh french comic this was a big deal um and it's just fairly recently, around the time of the uh, Bong Joon-ho adaptation, started to get some um, eyes on it in like America. Um, and apparently this is like a big thing with European comics where there's like usually translation issues. It can be a very expensive process to get it translated into English and get over to the States. And so a lot of it just doesn't happen. So there's all, apparently there's a lot of these like really um, groundbreaking and influential comics that english uh only readers are just not able to get access to so this is a you know a reference that i think will mean something to to some people but there was the movie valerian and the city of a thousand planets that came out somewhat recently massive uh massive budget huge uh huge swing that was taken i think it cost was that like Wach- wachowski no it was yeah. it was um luke Besson. Oh, Luc Besson. Okay. Yeah. So he he was a fan of a French science fiction comic that he felt like wasn't getting enough. Uh, it wasn't getting its due internationally. It was sort of in the same kind of situation that you're talking about. And, you know, say what you will about that movie, but like it's clearly there's a huge world to it. And like there's big swings being taken and, you know, very, I don't know, it's massive. It's a ma- And like, I'm sure that if you dig into the comics, there's a lot to it because Luc Besson thought it was worth spending $200 million on to uh to make that film wow um so yeah i mean i you know i it's it's kind of a tragedy to think of all these stories we we potentially will never read just because there's no translation for them and we won't understand them well and i you know i want to hope that that's being like if they're there and there's money to be had (laughs) you know what i mean i feel like people are going to make these translations so hopefully we'll see more of it um but I actually just realized I made a mistake. Um, and so rather than like trying to re-record it or something, I'm just going to make a correction. Uh, so the series was continued by writer Benjamin Legrand, who replaced Jacques Eslob um, for The Explorers and The Crossing. And then the fourth volume, Terminus, was actually uh, Olivier Bouquet. Um, so it's it's changed hands several times with, with its writers. I just want get to that, get that accurate. Right. I mean, that just shows, again, the impact that it must have had on all of these different writers who wanted to work on it and continue yeah. to work on it and, and you know, push it forward. I, there's an interesting phenomenon I was seeing, and I was trying not to like delve into a lot of the reviews, but um, this this comic has pretty low reviews on Goodreads. And I, I think I can pick up some of the reasons why, um, but I, I also feel like it's it's very french <laughs> um and, right. and just in the way that like i understand which is very little but uh, the little bit i understand about french culture especially um in the past like and this was in the early 80s um this book is very nihilist it's very dark it's very bleak and hopeless at times and the, i think the art style like you were referencing kind of reflects that it's black and white it's at times like you'll see big expanses of of, of white but then you'll also see lots of darkness and in some of the like more claustrophobic scenes and i think that's really what they're playing with with that like sort of light and dark and maybe why it was that black and white style was chosen yeah i wanted to talk to you about that a little bit actually because black and white in storytelling 
the decision for there to be a lack of color has always been really interesting to me. You know, we've seen we've seen a lot. I wouldn't say a lot, but some of these like genre movies recently, like Logan or Mad Max, have had like black and white cuts where the director goes in and like actually, you know, desaturates and takes the color out and and makes the contrast more sort of pre- prevalent. Uh, what do we what do we think about that? What do you think of the idea? Like what what is what is gained by the lack of color? Well, I think here, like I just said, it, like it, it, I think it reflects the tone. Like it, if you're in a world where it's all it's it's black and white, but it's also a million shades of gray, right? And that's kind of what's going on here. Is is it's it's cold, it's harsh. Um, it, I, you, as soon as you start seeing the warmth of color, it's going to change the way it feels. So in a way, it's like the 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 impact, the feeling of reading it. I think is directly tied to color sometimes. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because it can also be just the fact that like in the early days of comics and stuff in America, color is 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 more expensive, you know, black right. and white is that, cheaper. That may so, have been a factor. That's a and it may have. Mind. And it also comes down to like sort of what are the tools that you have at the time to tell your story? And like, are you leaning into that? And I wonder if, you know, I think the decision was clearly intentional to make it black yeah. and white in this story. Yeah, I think it was because I was looking at some of uh, Rochette's uh, other work and I was seeing a lot of um, color and even his earlier his earlier pieces so it wasn't like he wasn't known for doing color I, th- I think he did um, but I'm far from an expert on any of this I'm you know this is going off of like what I've seen in different articles so who knows um, but I okay before all of that aside um, I, I, I wanted to ask you just general thoughts about the comic reading it like what was your experience like I know you've seen the movie, so you probably came in with a lot of preconceived notions, but if possible, try and try and keep that aside if, if you can. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's hard, but just just to put it on the table, the fact that I had seen it, um, I somewhat understood, you know, the, the inner workings of the world a little bit, but it is different enough to where it's not. It's actually quite it, different, it, yeah. Yeah, it's different. Um, a couple of things that I was realizing is it seemed to be to be a little more watered down than what than because I you know I was I was coming from the movie, but to to take all to strip all that out and try to just come at it objectively, it feels it definitely feels of the time, but it it also f- still felt sort of vital and important. And then you know there's the added element of being trapped in a space, and then the added the added little thing at the end where. Um, there's an outbreak, an epidemic that, that's going yeah. on in the story is is kind of, you know, anytime I hear epidemic or pandemic or anything <laughs> viral or anything, just anything like that right now, I'm like, God damn, like, it's like, I don't know. I knew pe- I know people knew for a very long time that eventually something would happen. Yeah. But it's pretty it's pretty haunting sometimes when I when I like it gives me chills a little bit sometimes to think it's about. amazing to look back at how much it's in a lot of our fiction, right? Like the idea of a pandemic. Anyway, uh, so I'm realizing that I probably should go over the plot synopsis I have for people who haven't read it but are curious about it, right? Like um, the plot synopsis will spoil, I guess, what actually happens in the comic. So just real quick, um, I I found it to be an engaging read. Um, I was a little bit let down initially by the way it ended. Mm-hmm. Um, which we can talk about uh, when I read the synopsis. And then I, there were things I found that I didn't think aged very well in there. Mm-hmm. And then um, I also found it at times disorienting, um, which I don't know what the cause of that was, but there, part of it was art style, part of it was the way it was written. But um, I, I struggled at times to like realize where I was and what characters were what and 
um, some of that because a lot of these characters, and a lot of especially not the main characters, like outside of the main characters, a lot of people looked really, really similar. Like right. they were all sort of like like scruff white dudes with like with angular army. faces and like yeah, certain, and like, like military you know, military garb and stuff. Yeah, military hats talking. and uniforms, exactly. So it became very difficult at times to tell characters apart, especially a lot of these kind of guys. Um, and they often weren't given names, they, so they'd be just be like the guards and stuff. And I don't know. Yeah. It was so I would get disoriented at times with like who is this and where are they. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can we can discuss that more. But in general, um, I think if you are a fan of the movie, this is a cool comic to read because it'll mm-hmm. give you some interesting perspective. And I think this is actually a really and this is kind of a final thought, but I think this is a really interesting project to look at just for the idea of adaptation and like totally. what you can what you can do when you take a, a source material and you decide you're going to adapt it and do something well, really different with it. Too. Exactly. I, well, it's like the central message or idea was shifted for the movie. The central yeah. message to me in this story is sort of um, look at it was less about sort of the class system, which the movie ends up being about and more about um, this this one man like fight for survival through he, like he doesn't care as much about the people he's leaving behind and it's sort of a journey through we do see the class system of like first second and third class yeah. but um it's i, I think it I'm i like, think i think they're closer i think they're closer than they appear at first on first glance because i had the same initial thought of like these are really different as far as like the class system stuff but i think mm-hmm. they're closer i just think the the sort of like um where what you go where the story goes with it is different and um th- like i said this this story well let's do the plot outline because i, I want to be able to talk about like how it treats the sort of central thesis of the of the book and the way right. to really outline that is to just talk about exactly what happens I, I think there is a central the central idea of the story really quick um of of the the story from the graphic novel is this person who won't look back and is only going to go forward and keep pushing forward and he's kind of pulled into it in a way that there was no goal to get to the end At the, for his story it was never it was never about like i'm going to get to the end of the train it's sort of he he just like comes into this and then ends up getting close to the end and then being confronted with like some big ideas i guess there at the end like decisions yeah. that are that need to be made but in, in an entirely different way than than happens in the movie i guess yeah i i recommend reading it especially if you're a fan of the movie if you're not a fan of the movie at all and like you've seen it you didn't like it you're probably not gonna like this um, and even if you did like the movie, you may or may not like this cause it is very different. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on whether or not you'd recommend it? I think if you, like you say, if you, if you like the movie, you're going to, you're going to at least find it interesting to see like sort of where it came from. Okay. All right. I'm going to read the, uh, plot synopsis here. So after an environmental catastrophe induces an ice age, humanity occupies a 1001 car train. A man named Proloff is quarantined after escaping the rear, from the rearmost cars and is joined by a woman named Adeline, herself part of a movement to integrate the members of the back railway cars who, who live in squalid conditions into the rest of the train. Trying to rescue Proloff, Adeline is placed under quarantine with him. The two are eventually called to meet Colonel Crimson, passing through several different cars of the train. As they advance, Proloff and Adeline observe fresh fruit, vegetables, and meat, luxuries which they believed extinct. Crimson explains to Proloff and Adeline that the Snowpiercer has begun to slow down and asks Proloff and Adeline's assistance in advancing the occupants of the, of the rear of the train to enable the rear car's disconnection. 
Adeline agrees, but Proloff learns that Crimson intends to disconnect the rear cards while his friends are aboard with them. After warning Adeline's friends, Adeline and Proloff flee to the front of the train, pursued by the military. At the same time, a virus, ostensibly spread by Proloff, is infecting others aboard the train. Before reaching the engine of the Snowpiercer, Proloff breaks all the windows in the final car. Adeline dies of the cold, while Proloff is rescued by Alec Forrester, the engineer behind the Snowpiercer, who appoints him caretaker of Olga, the engine. As they are talking, the rear cars are disconnected. Proloff replaces Forrester as Olga's guardian, but suspects that the virus has killed everyone else on board, and that his own days are numbered, as the train cannot run forever. This uh, this idea of sequel novels after that ending is even more sort of a stretch than even the, the movie's ending. Yeah. You know, it's well, it's... I dipped in a little bit just to tell you uh, on the, what the plot of the second one was because I was kind of curious. I'm like, how do you do a sequel to this? There's right. a, there's another train. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So so I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense then. I don't know. Yeah. It, I feel like it's going to be related to the first one because I didn't I, I didn't read past the when it said like an, in another train. I'm like, oh, okay, but now I get it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, a lot to talk about here. Uh, kind of how how I how I mentioned, you know, the, the protagonist's goal was never to like get to the engine room or anything like that. It was sort of just um, he and, and, you know, the and that's sort of sort of the central idea, I think, in this because uh Adeline keeps talking about how, you know, why don't you ever do anything? Why don't you ever take action? What she keeps like, he keeps being in situations where he can confront them, but he does nothing. And um, ultimately, like, he's like dragged into the engine room, and then there are decisions that are made sort of outside of his control. So he's sort of a passenger along th- yeah. for this whole story. He's, um, he's very French in this. Like, he's very, like, disconnected. Like, it all, nothing, none of it matters, you know, like. He's sort of world weary and beaten down by it all. And then his suspicions of everything being mean- meaningless are sort of confirmed. And then he's kind of driven mad by it. And yeah, um, it almost punishes him for ever thinking that like any hope could be had. It's right. very bleak. You know? Yeah. I, the, the most interesting conversations are between he and the sort of historian, uh, the person who like has been keeping all the books and, and like when oh, yeah. he he confronts the keeper of the knowledge or whatever and he's kind of mm-hmm. talking to him about like why did this why did all this happen why did the was it war was it intentional was it you know like is it sort of a way that they were trying to control society and get them onto a train and that kind of thing yeah and it seems to be that it was likely war is what i was getting but maybe they didn't right. know yeah. Right. But like, it's like, yeah, it was like, was it intentionally done to defeat the enemy and then you survive in some sort of, or was it, was it literally just an accident as an outcome of war? You know, mm-hmm. this is, this is kind of what I, what I get from this is sort of anti-war, anti-totalitarian rule, anti, which, which kind of gets into what, what goes on in the movie. But, uh, it's very much about like what's going on with the environment because clearly it's it's like gone to shit yeah. because they're no, in a train I that's think the in environment the ice. is very important here right like because we get a lot of sort of discussions of the you know ecology and then there was one like weird sequence which was very dark so i guess i guess that's what they're going for but it, there's this um artificial meat that they call mama oh yeah this that, is weird as hell that is like all the meat on the train i think it's ever like there's some rabbits later on that the like for like first class passengers get but this meat, like, they say that the that Mama like flinches when they cut it, and there's like discussions of whether or not like 
you know mama feels pain right and stuff which is just it's just weird it seems like um it seems like paranoia about artificial meat in a way that <laughs> seems completely unfounded yeah like you know well, what I mean? and and not to dig back too much into the the class discussion but basically the idea of first class is eating rabbits second class is eating this this meat um the distinct the distinction i think between sort of lower class and upper class in the movie is so drastically different yeah whereas like in this story they're still on the brink because they're just yeah. eating rabbits they're not eating steak and just sushi yeah. and all that other stuff that's true. Every there isn't yeah, the food isn't as plentiful as it seems to be in the in the in the movie. But we're not talking about the movie. Stop right. trying to tr- stop trying to entice me into talking about the movie. The comforts. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh so yeah, in this one, uh I think it is interesting to think about the middle class because essentially is a middle class passengers here and that's what uh Adeline is from. And she's sort of sympathetic of the lower class, but she doesn't she doesn't like she's kind of naive. Like she doesn't really know um, anything about them and uh, that's where I felt like there was an interesting sort of discussion being made about class struggle here right like the idea of a middle class sympathizer to the poor who doesn't actually really understand what's going on but it's like means well but it's maybe sort of naive about it um, and then you also have um, this lower class uh, or third class passenger whatever um, sort of he's his journey is about coming to the front of the train and he seems to, he just wants to be out of his squalor, right? Like he cares a little bit about it, but we really don't know much about him and like what he actually cares about. So yeah, the, I mean the, the idea of a middle class, I thought, I mean, this, this story does kind of set the, set the foundation for what Bong Joon-ho would do with, with the story, but this idea of the middle class and the lower class being dictated by what the rich and the military and the government of the of the car per se um the the middle class feel like they have some sort of agency and they 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 can go back and and help the the lower class but in in reality it seems like the the rich are going to do whatever they're going to do and the middle class and lower class are just along for the ride um and sort of like the need for revolt is there and like the want to do that but that's sort of i feel like the 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 allegory that's being drawn yeah and then the middle class um like you said uh it's like they're free to to worry about the lower class passengers but as soon as they do they get lumped in with them right like that's what happens with adeline as soon as she's like sympathizing she gets tossed in with a guy and they shave her head and they start treating her the same as they're treating him so it's like trying to say like you know yeah you can sympathize but as soon as you do the upper class is going to turn on you Right. And and like the idea also that like the poor or like the lower class there are, you know, they have diseases or they're filthy or this or that and all these things. Yeah. They, they're making them inhuman in yep. ways and shaving their heads and saying, like, don't come near any of us. And um, yeah. that sort of divide that 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 the fear of of, I don't know, the unknown or the fear of of difference, you know, someone who's different or someone who doesn't fit. They call them the tail fuckers, which tail fuckers. Uh, <laughs> has maybe a different connotation these days, but uh, yeah. uh, it could also be a translation thing. I don't know. But it's just kind of funny seeing that repeatedly tossed around. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should definitely talk about like sort of the sexuality of it, too. Yes, I was going to move I, to that next. I think that's yeah. sort of clearly from an American's perspective. European uh, Europeans outlook on sexuality is a lot different than Americans. Yeah, that's yeah, especially French from what I understand. Yeah. Right. And so like seeing a story from that perspective and, you know, I'm not saying like 
this is how I feel. I just think as a whole America, you, you know, like the censoring on television, there's, there's been all kinds of stuff that has gone on over the course of America yeah. to make, to sort of have that be a deep seated society thing. But uh, to, yeah, to get a story from the eighties and to, to show sex so freely and to show sex um, as like the escape for a lot of the passengers. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the key. That's like, it's, it's the thing that allows them to, turn a blind eye to everything going on it seems like sex is right. the primary um means of escape and means of of uh you know i don't know just being able to be happy or exist in this world and not worry about other things right i mean which is a seed that carries through into the adaptation too There's and it's unfortunate because it does limit that it sort of puts that role to be the primary role of all the women characters even adeline is um you know, gets into a sexual relationship with Proloff very quickly too. It was it was it was shockingly quick. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. and then she's almost at one point she's like trying to use her sexuality to get in, like to convince people to to let her into a car further yeah. up the up the train, and then she's like almost assaulted for it or is assaulted. I'm not sure. Yeah, they, there's an implied there's an implied assault. She maybe. like kind of is able to get away, but it wasn't as easy as she thought is kind of exactly what yeah. she said. And a lot of the, the richer men are seen to have like sort of concubines or prostitutes that, that they have around, um, which I'm not saying is inaccurate, especially as we're seeing, you know, a character like fucking Jeffrey Epstein or whatever his name is, um, yep. you know, like rich people often do reprehensible sexual shit for sure um and maybe that's what what was trying to be spoken on here um but it's in the in the in the form of a narrative um i guess i would have liked to see a little more representation of the women characters that isn't sort of relegated to that one role we get a little bit of it with adeline but i she, she also still sort of is trapped by that but maybe something's trying to be said i don't know like i'm not trying to completely you know skewer it for that it's just mm -hmm. something I noticed from like my perspective that felt a little off to me, but um, tough yeah. to say if that's you know objective or not. Well, and then Clearly like let's, to, to get to the end, like uh, the idea of first of all the the decision to shoot out the windows, yeah, um, when Weird. he's getting close to the end, it seems really rash. They were yeah. in a situation where they didn't need to do that yet. He seemed like he did that very quickly, and then yeah. it immediately it, led was, to her what death. What was really the purpose of it? It was to separate him from the pursuers, right? And they wouldn't come into the cold because what what happened to Adeline would, would would happen to them. They would get frozen. Yeah. So, but like it's such a it's such a drastic measure when they're not when they don't have you at gunpoint, basically, because like yeah, it's, they weren't in the weird. room yet. Yeah. And then yeah, then she just freezes to death, and like I don't know, man. It seemed like that was it was such a strange place to sort of transition to the end it just here. felt like there could have been more meaning to her death like i i know there's the haunting he's haunted by her like yeah. at the end when he's by himself but at the yeah. same time like there could have been sort of more built into that i don't know yeah i don't know man it's it's it feels like there's more going on there than maybe i have quite sort of been able to to suss out um but yeah it's it, it was a weird sequence because it felt like completely unnecessary the 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 guy they were with who was you know up to that point had been the villain um he just runs away when it happens goes back and you know further into the train doesn't die right. from the cold um well, he, and he locks it i think he locks the door behind him yeah so they're stuck in there yeah um and then adeline just succumbs to the cold and dies uh proloff gets very very cold but then is rescued by the engineer it seems very arbitrary um but then uh we could talk about we need to talk about the art, art the engineer character uh so he is 
he's an interesting guy because he he observes everything that's going on in the rest of the train, but he's completely disconnected from it. It seems like he doesn't really get involved. And his whole thing is just like, I got to keep this train running. It's a perpetual motion machine, yet it is getting old and it needs like maintenance and it needs some control going on. And it basically, just, he said it just needs presence. It needs like him to be there. And when we meet him, he's coughing and he's like happy that Proloff is there and essentially offers him like, you know, now that you're here, you're going to be my replacement. Yeah, I mean, I definitely want to talk about the idea of somebody needing to be present and right. they're, they're sort of not doing anything. I, it, it, clearly, there's some some allegory being drawn there. And what I came to was uh, the idea of like figureheads in government. They're, they're like or like a monarchy or something like that, like in a situation now where they're there for looks, they're there to be present in that role, but they don't necessarily have any power to change anything or do anything. Um, and like, that's not, I'm not saying that that's the answer to what they were saying, but that's something I drew. Um, but then there's also this idea of him overseeing the whole train and knowing what everyone's doing, which is very like godlike, very much like overseeing. He's at the head of the train. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's involved with creating the train. Uh, so, and now he's not, he's not getting, he's not doing anything to intervene, but he's watching all the events that go down and everything like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I keep thinking of the existentialist movement, which I know was big with in, with like French thinkers and uh, just kind of sort of tying it to existence. The idea that this that he just needs to be present and um, that it is sort of meaningless, like his presence is meaningless, yet it is still important in a way. Well, and, and like, like no matter what he does, this train is going to keep moving. Like yeah, life is going to go on. Yeah, it's everything's going to go like on. It's like the absurdity of of existence. I think is on display here, and it's like none of this matters. Yet I still feel like I need to do it. And he's sort of driven mad by it at the end, where he's like hearing these knock, the knocking that that may or may not be happening, and um, some of his screens have gone blank. So he thinks that everybody else has died in the train, but he doesn't know for sh- for certain. Right. Um, which, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it was a very sort of hopeless ending to me. Um, but yet it was like, that's, that's what we're here for. We're here to just sort of bear witness to the, the misery of life, which feels very right. French to me. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it is very, you know, some people have massive legacies. Some people are on the earth for, you know, 80, 90, hundred years and then they're gone and like, they haven't left any legacy and like the, the absurdity of, of all of it. It's like, what does it all mean? What are we here for? Yeah. Why do we keep, why do we keep going along? Why does the train keep going? Why doesn't it stop? Like, you know, what, what I, it's all, it's all going on with or without you. Yeah, especially oh, once everyone's so yeah. dead. Like, what's what good is there in keeping it running? I don't know. These are yeah. all questions that are asked by the end of this novel, not really answered. Um, and that's, I guess, yeah. one of the reasons why I said earlier that I found it a little bit underwhelming or a little bit of a letdown. And that was, like, I wanted answers, but then, like, the more I thought about it, the more I was, like... But that, but that can be good, too. Like, it, it's, it's making me ask all these questions. And a lot of them don't have clear-cut answers. Right. And I like lo- I like the variety in storytelling, right? Like yeah. I like I like stories like this because there are all the stories of oh the train stops and life goes on right. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so it's like the, the rosier having- ending. There's a revolution and everything's great. Yeah. Right. So uh, so having both, like I, I appreciate both. I do want to say that last frame the last frame of the train just continuing on no matter what, uh, is haunting. I mean it's it was amazing. It's really beautiful and it's like haunting. Yeah, the last line, which is just a, it's just a panel of the train kind of just like going across this barren whiteness. 
Across the blank immensity of an eternal winter, from one end of the planet to the other, there travels a train that never stops. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's... There is these occasional sort of, like, pull-out moments where it talks about the train and how it's just traveling. And, it, I don't know, yeah. it just seems, like, weird and pointless, but also inevitable yeah. i don't know well uh, i mean i really like the recurring the recurring panels that, that kept showing up that were like that throughout the novel and i felt yeah. like i you know i don't i didn't look at the release of this or anything but was was that the beginning of each issue there would be there would be like a moment like that was it released in issues or was it an entire graphic novel i don't know how the run went and all that stuff yeah i'm, I'm not yeah. completely clear on that and, and but it serves as nice chapter sort of chapters as well if you want sure. to like start or stop at one of those moments that that's and how i wonder it if it was least. released in that way that it might have been um, so much like our Philip K. Dick discussions, I did find this to be a really fascinating place for an adaptation to come in and say, okay, here's a story. It, it sort of leaves us in a certain place. I want to find, I want to do something different. And I'm mm. using this as a transition now <laughs> to move into talking go. about the film, um, which, uh, which takes this as a basis and then just kind of goes somewhere that very different with it while still, while still having a lot of the same bones, um, right. which, which was fascinating. I do also want to, we forgot earlier to shout out Stephen E commissioned this project. Uh, I want to shout him out. Thank you for doing that. Um, he's at our jukebox hero level uh, in our, on our Patreon and was able to commission this project. Um, we release bonus content on there uh, monthly. So definitely check that out. If you're interested, patreon.com slashing the film. Yeah, thank you again to Steve. This is a fun project. Uh, so using that as a transition into the yeah. movie, here we go. I mean, just to start it off, I think we should talk about general, ge in general, what we thought of the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, you can compare it to the to the graphic novel as well if you want to. Yeah. Um, but just talk to me about your first, I think, first Bong Joon-ho film that you've seen. It is, I, I believe, unless unless there's one in there that I don't realize he was the director of. Um, but yeah, I think it is the first one. So this movie is wild and uh i kept thinking about total recall while i was watching it honestly i was reminded of our recent coverage of total recall and mm -hmm. it is a movie that is like out of control in so many ways um right. and i wasn't expecting it to be i don't know what i was expecting but i didn't realize yeah. i was going to get this like I, and i don't know if it's insulting to compare it to tarantino but i i was drawing comparisons there to tarantino's style in some ways um, it, it is wholly its own. I'm not trying to say it's a clone or anything like that. Like it just felt like there was some influence there, maybe. Um, and it, it was it's this blend of genres, uh, blend of tone. Um, it's all over the place. It is clearly um, limited by its budget. I think the a lot of the effects are a little bit janky. Um, sometimes the rapid changes in tone can leave my head spinning a little bit. Like it was like, mm -hmm. it was comedic. It was brutal. It was dark. It was serious. It was, um, farcical or like bitingly satirical. It was all over the place. Um, and then much like total recall, it, it just went for a, like twisting the, breaking the knob off whenever possible. And these just over the top scenes. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know, man, colorful characters everywhere. And I didn't know what to think of it for a while, but it won me over, and I think I love this movie. 
Yeah. So I, I know that I feel like you might not agree because <laughs> we've talked about it in the past. But like, honestly, by the end of it, I was like, I think I love this crazy movie. It is, it is, it's wild, but I, I really enjoyed myself watching it. Okay, so I think I think we've made a, a Korean a Korean cinema fan of you because a lot <laughs> yeah. of the things that you're talking I think I have about seen are some kind of other staples. Korean films. I, I should say, like, I don't think this is my first right. like Korean film, but I'm assuming you've probably seen Old Boy, one of the most famous Korean films. Actually, I haven't. I haven't seen. Okay. okay. Well, <laughs> that one that that's a good place to start. Uh, yeah. Besides Bong Joon Ho related material, so uh, Korean film is very particular in the way you touched on basically almost everything. Um, it's this it's it takes sort of um, influences from American cinema, influences from Japanese cinema, inf- influences from all over the place, and then also has its own sort of wholly unique way of blending things. So it's mm-hmm. it's it blends genre. It it has this sudden tone shifts, which I think is very specifically right. Korean film and Bong Joon-ho, yeah. which for for me is is some of my favorite stuff because it's so unique and it's such a such a unique voice. I, you, you know, you're hinting at the fact that like I've talked in, in past episodes here and there about Snowpiercer whenever it's come up. Um, I, I do love this movie. I love this movie. But I think where it where and like, honestly, during this viewing, I, I found myself kind of being a little bit cynical uh, in the past and kind of saying, like, what are you thinking? You, you, so what specifically has been said was on the podcast, it was mentioned that like Snowpiercer was one of the best movie, best sci-fi movies of the last like five or 10 years. Now, let me clarify. This is something I had heard, not necessarily something I was endorsing because I hadn't seen it at that point. And I just told you, hey, I had heard some people saying this thing. Okay, right, go right. On. That That I think is, you know, the whole thing of it is, is like I was seeing it from my perspective. I was like, I don't agree, but it's all about opinions, you know. Like mm-hmm. if someone, after watching it this time again, I looked at it and I was like, if someone enjoyed it that much and it's one of their favorite sci-fi movies of the last five to ten years, great. That's that's fantastic. Like this is a cool, unique. It's got a great, strong voice, really strong direction. It's and it is a fun sort of post-apocalyptic and like we know the basis of the story is very like it's simple. And yet it's it, you're able to do so much within that simple framework. Oh, I, I feel like you is, is it safe to say because I feel like in the past you represented the way you felt about this movie as being more negative than I'm hearing from you now. No, I definitely feel like I, I feel like this viewing changed me a little bit. For OK, sure. that's what I was trying yeah. to get at. I was like, do you feel like you you changed the way you you view this movie or, or did this yeah. reading the book? Was it reading the book that did it or was it maybe just dialing in more to what you've what you were seeing? So I think I think most of what it is is rather than thinking of it as like specifically sci-fi, I was comparing it to other Bong Joon-ho movies, which was a mistake. I was thinking like this isn't even my favorite Bong Joon-ho movie. How could it mm-hmm. be the one of the best five sci-fi movies the last f- five? It's not in my opinion of the last ten years. It's not even his best sci-fi movie. Okay. So it's like so when I heard that, I was just like pretty quick to push back against it. Anyway, I I, I definitely enjoy it more than I think that that I remembered. Um, I just saw it the one time and back in 2013 when it first came out. Okay. And I have since... It was seven, seven years ago. Right. And I have yeah. since definitely become even more of a Bong Joon-ho fan. Like I said, I, and like I've seen so much more Korean film since then. It's interesting that you would say that because I, I feel like if I had seen this movie when it came out, I don't know if I would have liked it as much as I do now. <laughs> um, right. I think my, my just my perspective on film has changed. And um, this movie is riddled with what I would probably call plot holes. Um, There's a lot of logical problems. There's a lot of scenes that I honestly didn't buy from like a realism point of view. 
Like I'm specifically thinking about like them shooting at each other uh, through the windows of these trains while they're moving at like this speed right. and it's through glass and, and tons of distance. And I think past Luke would have gotten really caught up with like that couldn't happen. That's silly. And then I would have gotten frustrated and then it would have like impaired my ability to enjoy the movie. But I just find that like these days I'm just, I care less about that. And I'm more interested in like style is the movie trying to say something? Are right. the characters engaging? Am I am I interested in the story? Is it internally consistent with like the way it represents itself? And it checks all those boxes for me. Right. You know what because I mean? Because at the end of the day, uh, a train smashing through snow on a railroad track for years on end is unrealistic in the first place. It, exactly. So it's, it's like it's, leaning it's, into it's, the absurdist um, absurdism of it all. And like, yeah. I think I think you're right to say that it's it's in fitting with the rest of the movie. And it doesn't break that sort of like right. logical standpoint that it's set up on its own. It's, the movie's ridiculous. Like it, it, right. it's um, it, this is not The Martian, right? Like this is not hard sci-fi. This is not. Let's have a discussion about what it would be like to have a train that somehow survived the apocalypse and and is is self-sustaining. And if you start going down that road of like, is this plausible? Could this happen? Like you're going to get lost like because right. like, ultimately no is probably the answer <laughs> like if you really want to dial down into it like this could probably never happen the tracks themselves would be a problem like i assume they would they would erode they would have to have maintenance even if the train could continue to run the tracks that they are on themselves would not be usable without maintenance i would assume yeah in those conditions and stuff no way yeah no way yeah absolutely not but you're talking about like the you know the effect that it brings shooting through glass at each other from across the way as we hit a turn that's so over dramatic it's yeah. so completely over dramatic but what what is the filmmaker saying in that moment like yeah. like look at the drama of how much these two hate each other how much yeah. like they're like look like they're going to will these bullets to get close to each other from all, through all this wind across these windows and all yeah. this craziness that's that's like the character is sort of like that's the extension of the character at that point yeah and it shows how much they hate each other in that moment, like you said, like how much they desire for the other person to, to die. <laughs> and yeah, and I just love that with storytelling is that you can yeah. take it to that to that level. I don't know if I hit on it enough, but this movie has so much style. Like it is and like I didn't know it at first, but I think the scene where it really came across to me was when they uh, they got to the scene with uh, all the guys with the axes. There's just hundreds of guys with axes and they got these weird masks on and they like cut open a fish for no real reason at the start of it. And then you get this crazy battle and uh, they're all, they all have goggles on and then the, all the torches happen and you get the guy running through. Like it, it was so stylish that I, I at, at that point I, I just kind of forgave any sort of logical problems with the movie. I'm like, I just don't care anymore. I mean, you talk about a filmmaker who oozes style. Bong mm -hmm. Joon-ho is like, is the epitome of that to me. Like he's, and like genuinely in terms of, of filmmaking language, there's there's a lot of filmmakers that uh, I think of people like Bong Joon Ho. I think of people like Guillermo del Toro and like Edgar Wright. They just like ooze their style, like their specific voice. Mm. Um, and like Bong Joon Ho, you'll see it. I, and I'm highly recommending uh, because I I think you're you I think I can tell that you like the movie enough in the ways that would uh, I would ask you to watch Parasite. And I know that you've said that you want to, so I, want to. I know you're going to. <laughs> uh, but definitely use this as a reason to do that. And anybody else who's listening. Yeah. Because that movie was so like to me, the fact that it won an Oscar in the period is, is just a, a miracle. And I couldn't believe it happened because that movie was so clearly the best movie that year to me mm -hmm. and was so, so clearly my favorite. And I couldn't believe that 
you know, Bong Joon-ho won Best Picture for an international foreign language film mm-hmm. uh, that just hasn't happened in America, really. So to see the Oscars sort of, sh- like, recognize that was amazing. I really want to watch it. I, it's super high on my, like, overflowing list of movies that I need to see um, right. desperately um, that it needs to be towards the top, I think. Um, do we want to mention that, like, we might have a plan for doing content surrounding these movies because <laughs> this yeah, is like i mean it's it's kind of in the works i guess yeah. to give our, our you know our listeners our hardcore listeners everybody who's listening we have this idea we don't know if it'll ever come to full fruition or anything yeah. but we have this idea to potentially find a way whether it's in the normal feed or in a, another podcast feed or somewhere or but we'll patreon. make it we'll make it patreon somewhere we'll make it clear to our listeners but we have this idea that we potentially could uh find a way to show each other movies that we haven't that one of us hasn't seen before so if i'm yeah. showing you parasite you're showing me uh la confidential is one of the biggest ones that i still haven't seen people talking okay. about all the time although i think that's a that's i think a, there's more than just that one but yeah <laughs> no there no totally there's way more but uh yeah. that is an adaptation i think as well yeah, that's so we an adaptation i think we might anyway. cover that one but so we're talking more about non-adaptation movies that i haven't right. seen and a lot of them that i need to see and uh, there might be a way in which at some point we cover that in, in a fashion that would probably be like reduced from this like full length episode but anyway i don't want to get into the weeds on it just if that is something you're interested in uh let us know and then also like keep to like stay tuned because there might be a way in which we're going to do that anyway yeah we'll make it we'll make it very clear yeah. but Bong Joon-ho, Parasite. I do want to give this as like a slight teaser. So this is, you know, this is, you're seeing like very, very, uh, this is an over-the-top story. This is like sci-fi taken to the edge. Uh, Parasite, take all the style, take everything that's in this movie that you like and then make it more subtle, make it, uh, and like, I'll just tell you for the most part, his his movies do deal a lot with class, class yeah. systems and things I like mean, that. I mean, and this movie's so about just, as subtle as a punch to the face. Like I get it. It's right. not it's not like there, it's but not that's what super I'm trying subtle. to that's what I'm trying to say is like the, the parasite is the subtle version. Yeah. Not even of this story in any way, However, but just like the idea. There, there is a lot more to it than I think is as unsubtle as it is, by the end. I just like I I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I really wanted to watch the whole movie again. Honestly, when I finished right. it, I mean the film like 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 okay. So the plot is not subtle. The idea yeah. of the class system is not subtle. A lot right. of the, a lot of like the major fact keys are not subtle. But the filmmaking techniques, yeah. the voice, well, and, like the, and the, the what where it leaves us at the end. It it leaves us in a place that is very thought provoking. Even though like everything that has seemed like very heavy handed to get there it leaves me with a lot of complicated questions and and thoughts that I wouldn't have thought would arise from a movie that is sort of, I don't know, kind of broad in some ways, like sort of obvious in some ways. And and like, it's like what it's trying to say. You're keying in on some of the things that I think on my initial viewing of this movie, I felt was, was that like, oh, it's a Chris Evans action vehicle that's kind of broad. And then once that was my opinion before I watched the movie, having watched the movie, I felt, I felt differently. I was like, wow, this is really technically, it's a real technical achievement to work in these spaces, the shots, the, the way the, the film language that's being used. Yeah. Um, but now with this viewing, like with the, with sort of my idea coming at it from a storytelling standpoint, and like you say, like a lot of the allegory that's going on, there's a lot baked into it that i think you can you can draw a lot from even though it's sort of a simplified story one of the most biting critiques of capitalism in my opinion that i've ever seen it's like obviously about that but it is so brutal in the way it is like yeah it's it's devastating to capitalism honestly 
So I got I to gotta talk about Bong Joon-ho so okay. we can get into the plot here. Yeah, so let's do it. I do have a quick story. Uh, director Bong Joon-ho often clashed with producer Harvey Weinstein. I don't know if you realized at the oh, beginning. Oh, God. I did Weinstein see the company, Weinstein so. company yeah. thing at the start, and I was cr- I was cringing. I was like, yeah. oh, God. It's unfortunate. I, I can't... But, like, that's the, the main thing is, like, I don't let producers like like this yeah. is clearly bong joon ho's art i'm not letting weinstein ruin that yeah absolutely way, yeah. i mean he's a he, he wrote checks and he probably tried to overreach his power in a way that was shitty is what i can All assume right, funny, from what you're telling funny, me funny funny that you say that yeah uh, <laughs> bong joon ho often clashed with producer harvey weinstein who frequently interfered in order to create his version of the film among the many requests the producer insisted having the fish scene removed in favor of more action Bong, who considered it his favorite shot in the film, which we're talking about the the scene where he they have the fish and they they pull the fish out. It's really really random. And they like gut it with an axe and yeah yeah. And I, I I thought like on my first viewing that they were putting some sort of poison. Like this is like a poison moment to to like and maybe that's still implied in some way. They're like the blood is poisoned in yeah. some kind and they're all putting their axe into it. Anyway, I don't really know exactly what it means. But Chris Evans later into le- later Curtis I should say later trips on it. <laughs> like like it's right there's, there's that moment too. <laughs> Yeah, he requested this. This scene was removed for more action. Bong, who considered it his favorite shot in the film, was adamant to keep it in. He told the producer that he wanted to keep the shot for a personal reason, as a tribute to his late father, who was a fisherman. Upon okay. hearing this, Weinstein said that family is very important to him, so he allowed Bong to keep the shot. In a later interview, the director said it was a fucking lie. My father was not a fisherman. <laughs> I love it. You know what? It, you know what I think it is? It's absurd, and I think he wants this moment of absurdity to help establish the tone of absurdism like it, it right. the, the scene doesn't make sense and but it sh- it needs to be in there to establish that like there's gonna be shit that doesn't make sense like and you're gonna have like that's what this movie is um right. also i thought it maybe meant that some of these guys were butchers or something like i don't know like i thought that that, that was maybe their role because there were so many of them and they all had axes and blades and i was like are these like the meat packing people or who like butcher the fish and stuff for the sushi and other yeah. things i don't know uh another scene real quick you you mentioned the scene with the torch which i find yep. that scene to be absolutely incredible they're like they're like handing off the torch running down mm-hmm. running down the train ca- uh cabin to cabin um there was no that 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 torch light was the only source of light in the frame for that and like to do that is really to make the bold choice to say like in my opinion it's super bold because normally you want your actors lit this this you know it it sounds like oh it's easy because they didn't have to light it but like to technically get this shot and to make it look good to get actors the you know the flame flickering on the actors faces things Mm -hmm. like that in a long tracking shot like that amazing shot and just an amazing moment and like the idea to be like oh i'm just gonna only use the torchlight is ballsy as hell and crazy like it, it yeah. came out really well though no uh, yeah look cool. it's one of the moments where i was like this movie is like off the charts as far as like how it looks like it's it, it's impeccably made right and that the actor the fight the like crazy fighter who's like carrying it at the end yeah uh what's, he just what's like that guy's was, name is it gray yeah i think so yeah that guy was cool. <laughs> I don't know. He had all these yeah. tattoos on him, and at one point he like shows it to the guy. Like, um, I don't know. He's like surrender or die. Surrender yeah, or die like, tattoos. And that's yeah. what I was talking about with like these characters are so like over the top and weird, but like colorful and interesting. Right. Well, and, and like we, this is not to even get into like the motion of the film because there's so much motion is very important. 
you'll notice the moment where Mason like has the shoe and is very particular about the way that she moves around the shoe and rotates it and all that kind of stuff. And then that would go on to be sort of a, a recurring hand movement. And then we find out at the very end why that is. Um, but I'll talk about that after we talk about the filmmaker. Um, do you know specifically what I'm talking about? Yes, I do know what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, the, the, and then like the idea of, um, the just the motion of the film like like chris evans the way that he's shot he's always propelling through through the train yeah there's a left sort of right like motion, motion to right? it all it's kin- kinetic and yeah yeah um, it's like left is left well, is like, back of train right is forward in the train like that that right. language i think is always kept we always are aware that if you're moving to the right of the frame you're moving towards the front of the train if you're going to the left you're going back okay i think that's i think yeah. that's consistent throughout i see what you're saying so you're saying like if he's framed if he's framed where he's he's looking frame left, then he's looking to the back of the train. Right. Exactly. I see. Correct. I didn't even think about that. That's <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, I think he's looking. Yeah, and then if, if he's looking, if he's standing to the, on the left and he's looking to the right, he's looking towards the front of the train. I think consistently. If that carries through, that's amazing. That's crazy. I think it is. And I think it I'm, does. I gotta check that out. I have yeah. to go rewatch the movie now. <laughs> but that's. I mean, that's crazy. That that. I don't know. I'm brain blasted right now. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But let's talk about let's talk about Bong Joon Ho a little bit. Bong Joon-ho is a South Korean filmmaker. He first became known to audiences and achieved a cult following with his directorial debut film, the black comedy Barking Dogs Never Bite in 2000, before achieving both critical and commercial success with his subsequent films, the crime drama Memories of Murder, which specifically I know that you like are into crime related stuff. You're going to love that movie. Okay. Um, yeah. There's a shot in memory. I, I, I don't want to spoil it for you, but there's a shot in Memories of Murder that is extremely famous uh and haunting for sure cool uh it's the i want to see more of his movie. movies I, i'm so like yeah. i'm such a fan of this movie that i'm excited to go watch of his uh, some of his other stuff uh another one is the the monster film the host 2006 i actually just rewatched that recently okay i've heard um, of that one i haven't seen it and then the science action film snowpiercer and the academy award-winning black comedy social thriller parasite <laughs> i love that there's like six different genres in there that makes so much sense like I, it, even, I mean, even it, just calling it a science thriller seems like like it doesn't even touch on all the things that are going on in this movie. Like there's so many oh, other yeah. things too. Like it's yeah. it's every it's it's amazing. And I think that's part of it. It's like there's so much humanity in the film, right? It's not just like saying like this is just an action movie or something like that. Mm-hmm. There's 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 joy, there's humor, there's there's like the ultimate moments of drama and low and sci-fi yeah. and like really going for it. Well, and it's also just other genres too. Like it's it it, it is action. It is yeah. also uh it is also like almost fantasy in in some ways like um right. ways that don't line up with with science fiction i don't know right moments there, of like there's like there's horror, like supernatural going like, on too like you have someone who's who's almost um there's a character who, who's like can like see the future and 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 be clairvoyant and so yeah like, right. like i said there's some fantasy going on too right and uh and then you also have like your horror or like body horror where oh, like people's sure. arms yeah. are getting ripped off and like <laughs> violence like that kind of stuff the freezing the arm outside the train oh my god right <laughs> it's brutal yeah <laughs> All of those movies, which I just talked about, are among the highest grossing films in South Korea, with Parasite also being the highest grossing South Korean film in history. Wow. All of Bong's films have been have been South Korean productions, although both Snowpiercer and Okja, which we haven't even talked about Okja. That was like oh, a, yeah. I saw it on Netflix when it came out. I didn't and, know that was him. Um, That's him? Yeah. Oh, and okay. that movie is, again, very like, it's more of a environmental movie, yeah. I would say. It's less of the social. Yeah. But same kind of thing and Tilda Swinton's it, in so. both <laughs> Tilda, Tilda Swinton's in both and oh, plays nice. eccentric characters in both yeah for sure and uh, Snowpiercer and Oakjaw are mostly English language two of his films have 
have screened in competition at Cannes Film Festival, Okja in 2017, and Parasite in 2019. The latter earned the Palme d'Or, which was a first for a South Korean film. Parasite also became the first South Korean film to receive Academy Award nominations, with Bong winning Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay, making Parasite the first film not in English to win Best Picture. Yeah, which was a big deal. I remember it being a big deal. It was massive. I just saw a tweet on, uh, like, literally yesterday, I think, and they said the last good thing that happened in 2020 was Bong Joon-ho winning Best yeah. Picture for Parasite. I am tempted to agree with that. I haven't even seen the movie. So, yeah, that's that's Bong. Uh, cool. Tons of movies we can talk about. Very yeah. interesting film. We'll have to talk about like him said. more when I, when I do watch Parasite. Maybe, maybe. Definitely. <laughs> for that, for whatever that thing ends up being that we end up doing. If we definitely <laughs> okay, so can we talk cast a little bit? Because I want to. I have Chris Evans' thoughts. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. Tons of good cast here. So I I think he is sort of like he's a, he's he's obviously star power. He's obviously made people go see this movie. They wanted to see Chris Evans. This is him sort of in the of height, the height of, his of his Captain America. Captain America. Yeah. I, I think I can see why he chose this because I think it, it was him saying like. I can play other characters. I'm not just going to be Captain America from now on. Because this character is, is, is while he's the hero, he does shit that Captain America would never do. <laughs> and is very out of character for like, it felt weird almost seeing Chris Evans do some of the stuff that this guy gets up to. Um, there's a particular choice he makes where he lets his friend die that I remember thinking like, no way would Captain America ever do that. That is like, at his core, go, would go against the Captain America character. Tons of stuff to talk about here. This this idea of a, a star in in their you know the height of their movie like Hollywood machine mm-hmm. making Marvel movies like making the biggest movies in the world, making the decision to go work for work with a filmmaker like Bong Joon Ho, um, you know that that I think speaks volumes to the filmmaker that he is. I think if you're if you're looking for a role that you can dig into, it's going to be with a filmmaker like that. Yeah. You know, um, and and I think that was a big deal to him. And I also read that Chris Evans. When he found out about the audition process for this movie, he he contacted Bong Joon Ho himself, but Bong Joon Ho initially didn't want him because he felt like his physique he was too big to be considered somebody from the from the tail of the train and yeah. didn't really make sense. So actually implemented sort of filmmaking techniques to to and like uh, the stuff he would wear and things like that to make his physique look smaller. I thought that they were to, doing that because I, I I was thinking about how like he is he's built in such a way that he would seem like too like larger than life in this movie like he he would seem like he should be dominating everybody he's fighting against uh you know if he's built like captain america so yeah that and it felt like they never highlighted his physique for that reason like they didn't want to show him to be this powerhouse chris evans reaching out to this director like you know yeah. having probably seen his past films and being like yeah. i have to work with this guy yeah and i love hearing that about certain filmmakers you know there's there's tons that everybody all the every actor wants to work with because they're they're just these these singular minds that are making these very specifically voiced films that people will remember for a very long time. So, and, and I'm a fan of Chris Evans and I like, I think, you know, I recently loved him in knives out where he plays an unusual role for like what we've seen him. Um, so I think he's got range. I think he can play characters like this. Um, all that being said, I feel like it's kind of a weird fit for him. And, uh, the character has to have such a dark past and yet Chris Evans is so likable. And it almost takes me out of it when he starts talking about all, like, all the darkness that is built into his character. And I think mm-hmm. it's my like love of Chris Evans and like feeling like he's so wholesome <laughs> um, right. that there's like a weird clash. And so like 
as much as I think he brings a lot to the movie, and he does, and he, and he nails certain things, he also is sort of a, a detriment in a ways because of the difficulty I had buying him as this person, as as Curtis with this this past that he has. Um, yeah. I don't think it's a fatal flaw or anything. Like I think it's fine, and I think in subsequent viewings I would get over it. It was more just the initial viewing and mm-hmm. coming in with what I know about Chris Evans and what I've seen him in. Um, and I don't know. I just wonder if like a different a different person who you typically associate more with like morally gray characters would have been able to shine even more in this role. You know what I mean? Like, right. I can kind of see what you're getting at, but the, I think, and maybe, you know, maybe in my first viewing, cause I, I do remember, like I said, being kind of cynical and seeing like, Oh, an action, an action vehicle for Chris Evans when he's in the height of his, you know, Captain America phase. And like, don't get me wrong. I love him as Captain America. I love comic yeah. book stuff. Like I always have. Yeah, You're a big comic um, book guy for sure. And so, and you're a Marvel it, fan, which I know is like kind of, kind of dicey these days. I feel like it's like very mixed. If you look at like film, film criticism out there right now. Right. I, you know, it comes down to like, is, is, are they swallowing the market for sure? Yeah. Um, but I think, I think you can look at the fact that they're making these films and still see them as like six. I still think you can look at them and see them as films that are worthy to be looked at as they're not, they're not making trash films at the height of their powers. They're making good, interesting films that I think they're broadly appealing and challenging audiences in some ways that I think is good. And then like the representation that they're getting into now, finally, I think is also yeah. really a good thing to see. But this, that's this, getting this into was too my much fault. I, I brought stuff. up Marvel, which I shouldn't yeah. have because <laughs> I know that we could have a separate podcast at any time about it. <laughs> I was just trying to put your credentials out there. Like you are a Marvel guy, like you're, you, you, and you back it up. So anyway, continue about Chris. It's, t- it's tough. Cause like, you know, in the same, in the same breath, I have to uh, criticize and also compliment. So it's tough because, you know, I, I totally, the idea of them swallowing the market and, and like not allowing smaller films to get made and have better distribution and that kind of thing is definitely not great for everybody mm-hmm. anyway but anyway so i saw this i saw that i was cynical at first and i thought maybe it was he was just cashing in that kind of thing but that's not what this is yeah. and if um, anything this is a risk for him it seems like like right. i don't know I, I, I can see why he would do it though because i think there's he's trying to say something with like his range here and doing this kind of role right and i think after I, I know he's interested in directing as well he um uh, he's definitely developed as an actor. I think yeah. he can. I, like I, what I was trying to say is that I bought him in the role specifically uh, early on. I feel like I bought in, but the scenes that the scenes that really show me that he was good for the role and fit were the scene that I think you're you're kind of getting to with him talking about his dark past, where like yeah. sort of like he was the man with the knife, and then also yeah. uh, the scene where he's like sort of looking into eternity or looking into yeah. at the end like you can see all all of the things you need to see in the face well, to sort he of literally like, says i know what babies that babies taste best um, right. <laughs> to get into you know we're, we're jumping all around through the plot of this movie but like yeah that was a line that i just didn't believe because i know how much like how likable he is and i'm like right. really chris evans i'm supposed to believe that you're the kind of person who could have done that <laughs> I don't know. Like I just struggled yeah. and it's my own fault. It's like my own preconceptions and like the fact that he's such a cool fucking guy. Like I love following him on Twitter. Like I don't know. Like I feel like he has embodied what it means to be Captain America in his like totally. personal life, which is amazing. Totally, yeah. That, that, that I mean, and that's true. such a mantle to try to carry. Too. Exactly. Like, that's and like like good for him. Yeah, like he's such a role model kind of person. So you're taking that person, you're putting him in this role, like it's I don't know, it's just tricky. Like there's something about the 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 stuff he does and and knives out, which I, I won't get into because I don't want to spoil anything. But it's just like it works, even though it's outside his typical Captain America shtick. 
it works in a way that like I struggled at times with this. Like, I don't know. There's just, I feel like there are other actors who <laughs> just play that morally gray character and it's, it becomes more authentically to them. Like they're just not more natural in that role. Um, not to say that, like I said, he's not a fatal flaw. It's fine. And in fact, I think in a repeat viewing, I wouldn't even be worried about it. Right. All right. So we got to talk about other actors. Yes. Song Kang Ho is okay. a frequent collaborator with Bong Joon-ho. Was he the, he, the drug addict lock keeper guy? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah, he was great. You notice, and I think I, that's, I got to talk about this right away, the blending of all cultures yeah. on the train and the idea of of international films yeah. blending all of these things together in such a fun movie. Um, I, I and, like, and like characters speaking Korean, yeah. you know what I mean? Speaking their native language. Like, I think that's important. And like, um, like that's why it's important for someone like Chris Evans in the height of his powers to go into a movie like this and expose audiences that go see the broadly appealing Captain America movies to also be exposed to Korean films in this way Absolutely. and to be exposed to other cultures and things like that. And, and honestly, it's one of the reasons I love this movie. So like as much as I'm, I, w- I was being critical, like I do love that Chris Evans is in this movie. I, I think it was great right. for the movie. And I think it's 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 cool to see him do this. So Song Kang Ho. Yeah, uh, I thought he gave him an amazing performance in this movie. I agree completely uh like he was believable funny a lot of the humor yeah. came from him um but also like when things got serious i bought him like he you know he dies for his daughter to spoil the ending but like the yeah. and the way that We're he like <laughs> sort of he yeah he tries to save his daughter's humanity too there's a moment where she p- picks up the knife and almost like stabs the person he's over t- over top of trying to kill and he like stops her from stabbing that person because he like He's he doesn't want to see her fall, like lose her humanity. In the I same love way. that he's secretly the key to this whole thing, because <laughs> like, we're getting right. into it. Like he, you yeah. don't expect him, but he like comes in as this drug addict, uh, out of his mind character who ends up being as key to understanding what this movie is trying to say by the end as is anybody, in my opinion. Right. I just and I wanted to shout out the fact that he was in Memories of Murder that I mentioned that you should specifically definitely check out. Okay. You'll love that. He was in The Host, uh-huh. and in The Host, uh, his daughter in this film, the same actress plays his daughter in that film as well. So cool. The Host came out in 2006, so seeing both of them come back again for this movie is really cool. Um, and then he's also in Parasite. Okay. He's, he's the I father thought he might have been, but I wasn't certain. Nice. Yeah, so he's like frequent collaborator. I love to see filmmaker, actor relationships like this. You get you get like sort of, mm-hmm. you see it with your Scorsese's, your Tarantino's, your Mifune with... with uh, kurosawa like you see you see these people like who just understand each other and continue to work together and i always love to see that and then moving down the cast list i mean tilda swinton in a career defining honestly like that that she would go on to do a lot of really oddball off the wall characters and i don't know if it was in response to this or if she had done that before though yeah i don't know she definitely has but this has got to be her most over the top role oh it's like she's out there (laughs) goes she was a lot of fun to watch though yeah, I mean, she's like one of my favorite parts of the movie. Yeah. She's such a delectable villain. She's yeah. like, she she keeps flipping back and forth between like, oh no, I'm just I'm just a dainty. Well, I don't have any power here. We're just trying to push through the cart through the cars. Nothing's going on. And then she'll pull a gun like at the first moment she's able to, and the yeah. way that she like talks down to the to the especially early on the speeches she gives to the to the masses in the in the tale is is all like awful, but awful. also really engaging. Yeah. Uh, Octavia Spencer was what had an amazing role. She was she was the woman who had her her son oh, taken yeah, away, yeah. and then proceeded to like I thought that her role. You know, you were talking about representation of women in the in the book. Uh, I felt that her role in between between Tilda Swinton and and 
between Tilda Swinton and Octavia Spencer, I feel like they had such juicy roles to, to sink their teeth into to do some real work with. Um, and I thought Octavia Spencer, like specifically when she died and like was telling was telling Curtis to like continue on and everything was really was really heart wrenching. And then uh, can't go without talking about John Hurt. Uh, rest in peace. Legendary actor. Yeah. He's been in everything and he died a few years ago. Um, it was just in this role. He's he plays sort of like especially later in his career. He plays like these elderly characters that are very much like the mm-hmm. father figures. You get this in like Hellboy. You get this in, um, you know, all kinds of stuff. But he was in Aliens. He's been in everything. And then uh, Ed Harris. Yeah, I was going to say, surprise the, Ed Harris. Villain. I did not know he was in this movie. Um, right. I managed to, to, to know a little bit about this movie without knowing that. So it was cool to like, surprise, Ed fucking Harris is in there. Uh, yeah, and I, he I is always it. good as the villain, obviously. Like he he just, I feel like he is a villain in real life, but I hope that, you know, I hope he's not. But he just like has that <laughs> I, I, role down I assume down he's not. And he's been yeah. he's been in movies where he's not the villain. And he's been like uh, I'm thinking like Apollo 13. He's in the he's famously like in, in charge of the uh you know the Houston uh, right. uh crew and he's 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 super likable in that. So he can he can play anything, but he does make a good villain. I'll give you that. And he does so. He does so here. He makes a likable villain, which is I think so important for the role he plays at the end of this. Like you can't just hate him. He's not just awful. You kind of like him right. too, even though he is a villain. Well, and like you, it's like you can kind of, from like a really macro perspective, understand his point of view, right? In like a really sadistic, awful way. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to talk really quickly. Bong Joon Ho was talking about the protein blocks that they had on set uh-huh. for the actors to eat. He said that they were they were created by combining seaweed, tangle, sugar, and gelatin, and apparently Jamie Bell hated them until the Swinton actually liked them. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a it's a good time here for us to just kind of jump into our favorite scenes, talk about some of our favorite stuff that went on actually in the movie and our differences from the from the book. Yeah. So I, I wanted to start with just sort of the whole first 30 minutes or so, the first section of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I really appreciated the amount of time that we spent in the tale setting up the foundation of the story, yeah. setting up the life, the lives that they were living, the boy chasing the ball or, or the boy like having the, the thing that had the note in it and, and then wanting to play with the ball. Um all of that really made for a strong foundation that would carry through and made us really care about the tail section. Whereas I felt like we didn't get like almost any in the no, book. Right? Not seen. We, we it was sort of just implied to be awful. And, and right. he, he, he does talk about the cannibalism stuff. That is actually, that does come from the book. Um, mm-hmm. in a, in a, in a way, um, he talks about how terrible it, it, it was and how they ate each other. They had to like eat each other to survive. And, and it was just good to see, uh, yeah, to see the the tale and to really uh, humanize the the you know the the lower class in a, in a way, so that we would cheer for them and, and feel invested in the revolution, which is much more um, present and um, it is sort of the main driving factor of this movie. And then there's sort of a twist at the end with it that I think probably loses some people, but I am so here for because I have like this whole. I've, I've developed this extended metaphor allegory thing that's going on and like what this movie's trying to say. And, and I, and I love it when I touch on something like that and then like everything else in the movie can be viewed through that lens. And that's where I'm yeah. at where like I, every single piece of this movie fits into the framework that I feel like there he was going for. And I love it. Yeah. And just to talk about the production design of this movie, which is absurd, the range in production from the drab, 
beginnings into sort of our aquariums, into yeah. the greenhouses, into all of that stuff, all the way through, then the, the fine arts the, area. The drug the, den and the The, the classroom. And the, yeah, yeah. And yeah, then, and then, it's, yeah it's, that, the, the, at the end, it's almost like a divine, like, uh, yeah. you know, like uh, the, the engine is itself is quite, I mean, quite it's like you're, to it. Production design literally had to create every set you known that you could possibly create for a movie mm. uh, to create this. Um, let's move into the kids being taken. Like the the troops come and take the kids, yep. and then they eventually freeze that guy's arm off out the window. Yeah, out the little hole that they create. Yeah, and then and then the 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 plan the the early on like it's just all about like we got to find a way to get out of these back you know areas, and they're trying to do the timer, and they get these weird messages, which we learn later it's being sent by the by the engineer. Um, but we don't know that here, and uh, they they have this. Uh, a fun sequence where they ram this like big long thing uh, through all the doors that Chris Evans rides um, and right. you know kicks off all, all the violence. Um, which the I set pieces fun. are just absurd, and like the timing of the doors and yeah. yeah, all of that was amazing. And then you get that gray character comes running along it to to knife that one big guy. Uh, yeah, the, the action cool. the action is like unbelievable in this movie as well. Like yeah, it, it, it just great. was very interesting to watch. You know, yeah. like sometimes you'll see a fight scene where it's just like you don't under, you don't understand or don't care about what's going on. It's just fun, interesting action, great choreography, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. We get we get to see Curtis as the reluctant leader, right? Like everybody's telling him he needs to be the leader. He doesn't want to be the leader. He's still looking to um, Gilliam. He's still looking to Gilliam for guidance and leadership and all of that um but you know as time goes on we learn like obviously he's taken over the role of leader long ago and just not realized it um and then we see tilda swinton uh give her speech and the shoe is thrown at one point when they're taking kids and all of that goes on the shoe i wanted to talk about the motion at this point the way that she pushes forward and rotates and pulls back very clearly at the end of the story is the when we find out the kids are inside of the front car because there, there are parts that are falling apart that they can't replace anymore. They use manual labor of children that are five years old because they're small enough to fit into those gaps. And that's the exact hand motion, the forward rotate pull back mm-hmm. that the kid was having to do like endlessly. So what are they trying to say by having her do that there? You think I, 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 that's, I mean, I think it's just like, I don't think that she, her character couldn't have known yeah. necessarily specifically that that was going on. So it's sort of, I think it's a filmmaker. She's too old to have been that. She's not one of the kids who used right, to do it. Right. She's a film. I think it's a filmmaker sort of leaving a motif behind of, of motion. You know, I don't, I don't know that I could necessarily key into the exact thought of what he was thinking, but it makes for interesting filmmaking, right? It makes for things that you think about as themes and, and sort of like, um, inherent things to the world. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, you see it too also with like the arm motion that everybody does when they're talking about the engine later. Um, it's right. almost like a, given a reverence to it. Like this is a thing that we all hold up as being important and um, we've kind of sort of incorporated it into our society as like this is the holy motion that is, is right. you know, yeah. Well, and I everything. think you just keep... You, you just dropped the last piece into place for me to figure it out. I think it's like the idea of that Ed Harris's character gives like every, and I think Tilda Swinton's character is also giving this speech at the same time. Just everything has a place. Yeah. Which so is a place for everything. Yeah. And sort of that's the, that's the echo that's going on later in the story as well. Like it, the, like the place for this child was doing this horrific thing inside of this machine um, and so there's just this idea the motif of everything has its yeah. place is that that motion and that, that where that hits capitalism is really interesting to me too because this is a takedown of capitalism for sure and yet you would think that within capitalism there's sh- like the whole idea is that anyone can 
theoretically achieve anything like you can come from the from the poorest person and become the richest right like that's the, right. the through the free market the, through the, the free market, market you can yeah yet you're yet here that is not true and um everybody uh everybody instead is very particular in like a caste system like they there is no mobility so right while it's a critique of capitalism i think obviously I think it is also maybe a critique of a particular kind of capitalism um, where, to me at least, where where it's like if you actually like the reality of capitalism where people don't have a lot of mobility because there's too many people who benefit from like the wealthy want to remain the wealthy and keep the poor poor because they're making money off of them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's a lot being said about like the illusion of that freedom and how it actually doesn't exist. Yeah. And like at the end of the story we get the the conductor the the engineer at the at the front basically saying like the the yin and yang of yeah of he's been the, working the together people, mm-hmm. right the people in the back the people in the back are basically being suppressed but their numbers are being kept at a certain level and like their their children are being taken to to you know continue the train forever um and sort of like the the front and the they they come together to create this like symbiotic relationship well and he he would argue that like there has to be like there has to be a tail in order for you know this to there to be a head to there to be a head and like everybody has their position and it's sort of ordained and like that's the way of the world and that's the way the world you know is obviously the microcosm of the train is supposed to represent like the the way that we perceive reality and the way that um seems to be the only way Right. And, and, you know, metaphorically, it's trying to say, like, maybe it's not <laughs> the only way. <laughs> right. And the, the, I mean, the great the great allegory that's being drawn here, that's like very like we said, it's very present, very on the nose. But it's it's effective because I think people go in and watch this movie and they say, look at the people in the in the first class cars. Look at the people way further up. Look how much space they have. Look how many people they could fit into yeah. these cars if they wanted to. And it's like, yeah, that's what's happening in our country. You know what yeah. I mean? Like that's the amount of what like that's a representation of wealth distribution in our country. Like those people have so much money, so much space per se they could accommodate so many more people and so many more people could live more fulfilling normal seeming lives but these people have to live in an entire carriage by themselves you know but that's not that's not where if if that was all the movie was saying i would like it less but it's actually not that's just that's just like the first that's the surface level exactly and then and then it says at the end you know which we're jumping around but whatever like Curtis tells his story um, about how horrific it is and how he is, you know, has this trouble of like deciding whether or not he can represent the poor. Like he, he, he hasn't like lived as bad as other people have yet. He, and he, and he, and he's not a good person. Like he's done things that he knows are, are unforgivable. And then he gets welcomed in at the end and Ed Harris tries to convince him that like, you need to take on my position and, you know, look back at like how violent they are. They can't be trusted to, to, um, to, they have to have order. They have to have this structure and you have no choice, but to take on my mantle. And, um, he, he's faced with this choice of like either take on the mantle or not, but like he decides instead to, to wreck the train. Um, he, he chooses option number three, which is blow it all up. And right. not accept the framework that as it's presented, and to me that's like saying like uh, it's not just that it's bad; it's saying that the entire system can never be good and has to be right. destroyed. 
And and that's what the the movie does at the end when it, everything gets blown up. There is not a redistribution of distance. There's not a uh, all the poor people get to come up to the front now. And we're right. gonna we're gonna have a we're all gonna live on the train happily with like equal because dis- it's not realistic. It's not no. It's because like it'll never the happen. whole fucking train right. has to go. Is what happens at the right. end. And that to me was the surprising bit. Like that that was like oh okay that's where we're going, you know. I also have a real quick. I, I I'll I'll put it out there and I'll get back to it. I have a whole theory about the drug. Uh, it's like chronol or whatever, and like what it represents that ties into all of this. But okay, go ahead. Okay, yeah. Well, I mean, clearly we can say like the chronol is the is sort of the seed that was planted by the by the novel with the sex. Right. It keeps the wealthy. It keeps everyone sort of sedated in order to not have to deal with the horrific stuff that's going on. But I'm assuming that's not exi- like you're talking about something more than that. Well, more than um, that. It, okay, I'll just get into it since we're talking about it. Uh, yeah, go for it. More than that, it um it is the it is the illusion. It's the thing that allows people to like, cause you see all these drug dens, right? And like, that's where all the rich people are. They're all doing this drug. And then you have the drug addict character who has like lost himself to this drug yet. It, you find out that he actually has this other plan in mind because it secretly is flammable. And I kept thinking right. of it as like, this is, um, this is representative of like art and entertainment and the role mm-hmm. it plays in society. Cause in some ways, it um it gives people an escape. I already I already love this by the way. Yeah, I'm into it gives this. you an escape yeah. to to sort of be blind to the evils of the world. But in other ways it's flammable and it is explosive right. and it can be made into a bomb to change things. And right. so I love that it, it has this like dual nature and the character is an addict, yet he is also using it to blow open the door. So I, I just feel like yeah. it, it can represent sort of like entertainment, like the mindless quote unquote entertainment. And yet the way that it can still be used to, to make lasting well, people, change. Right. And people can be consuming mindless entertainment or what they think is, you know, there is clearly mindless entertainment, yeah. but there is challenging stuff that, that is in, in entertainment and art as well. And when you, when filmmakers can sometimes subliminally put these ideas into people, it can spark that that sort of change in someone, or like that that yeah. spark of rebellion, or that spark of understanding, without people even realizing. And then there's the ones that very clearly are, you know, saying like social change needs to happen or whatever, whatever the whatever they want the the thing they want to implant is there. But I really like that. That's a great mm-hmm. metaphor for that. I'm super into that. Well, I also love how like when they that's the thing that gets the first class mad is when they take that away from them, when he steals it all. Yeah. Like, that's what causes them to up... Like, that's the thing. It's like, you can't fucking take our, right. our drug, our entertainment, our, our ability to just check out. How dare you? And that's what gets everybody upset, you know, at the end. Right. So it's fascinating. But then, oh, yeah, yeah, it's also... That is the exact thing that is used to be the bomb, which I, I don't know. Right. It's, it's trying to say something, I think. I, I Like I said, I have this theory about it. And, like, and, and the more I thought about it, like, everything fit into what was being said in a cool way right I, I can't go too much into this but i took a um chinese cinema class uh, in college and and it made me think about how filmmakers in in um communist china would you know the censorship was so extreme and they would find ways to subliminally plant the seeds of rebellion and plant the seeds of sort of like social change and that sort of stuff in their in their films and get them past censors cool you know what i mean getting them past censors and and i just like that idea of art slipping through uh, to spark rebellion and that kind of stuff is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I feel like I, I derailed something you were going to say by introducing this whole chronology. <laughs> okay, thing, so, so get, no, get I mean, I was just gonna, I was gonna get back to where he, the, you know, the story that he tells about the the man and the and the baby and the and the older man, mm-hmm. uh, and how he he killed the mother. We find out that it was him. He killed the mother, almost killed the baby, but instead the man 
the old man cuts off his arm and offers it and says, eat this instead of the baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we everybody starts cutting their arms off and people are cutting off limbs consistently in order to continue the everyone in the tail to, to get sustenance before these protein blocks are being cr- made. And we find out that Curtis wasn't able to cut off his arm. He couldn't do it. He just couldn't bring himself to do it. And he feels that that sacrifice hasn't been made. And then obviously at the end of the, at, at the, end of the movie, he makes that exact sacrifice yeah, his arm in order to, de- to, to derail the whole train and to destroy everything. Yeah. He sacrifices that arm by sticking it into a gear to save a child from inside the train. I also just want to point out how alluring the prospect is at the end. And I think it is set up that way to show how even the most well-meaning people if they are still working within the realm, the framework that capitalism presents to them, or at least this form of capitalism, if I want to like grant it, you know, a little bit of a leeway, um, even the most well-meaning people, when they get into the position of power and they get to the position of now they have all the power and they can make the choice, if they don't destroy the system, if they still want to work within the system they're in, they're going to be end up becoming themselves the thing that they were fighting against. You know what I mean? Right. And I think that's what it's trying to be said. Like, there is no way for him to become the new engineer without becoming the thing that he hated all along. Yeah. Uh, I do want to say that I felt like a clear biblical sort of s- s- allegories going on in here as well. Just like I said with the the man, the engineer in, in the story. Uh, this idea of someone overseeing everything, making all the decisions, he's literally created the world that they're living on. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of biblical stuff going on there. Uh that I think is definitely, I don't think we have a ton of time to dig into that right now because we need to talk about mm-hmm. a couple other things, but I wanted to talk about the classroom scene um, and just yeah. this, this like, you know, propaganda sort of brainwashing right. of, of children and, and all of that that goes on. Um, and again, it's sort of maybe, I think, I think the book had it a little more, but like this idea of religion, mm-hmm. of, it's almost become a religion to praise these, these, well, uh, and these you could like, argue political that, figures yeah. and these leaders and things like that. You could argue that capitalism is a sort of the religion of America. That's like the shared religion of everybody, right? Like in much of, much of the world. Um, and how like, you know, a way of how just a way of being can be given almost a religious, like untouchable. You can't criticize. It is holy. And it's indoctrinated from youth, which I think is a showing there. Like from childhood, you are shown that this is the way, right? And man, what a what a cool scene! Like I, I remember the the point where this camera's spinning around the person playing the piano, and it's so joyous, and but it's so like, oh my god! And then all of a sudden, the violence just erupts, and you have the weird bald headed egg guy <laughs> just starts yep. pulls the gun out, and starts killing everybody. Man, like yeah. this movie just cuts on like it just does 180 degrees and and changes course so quickly, so many times. Um, yeah. you can never and get like, like comfortable little, like, like and like feel like you've right. figured out what's going to happen like you don't know what the fuck's going to happen yeah and i love that that's that's what i love you know i love being surprised i love being shown something unique something weird and different and like i'm all for that kind of stuff so uh any other scenes you want to talk about before we wrap up here i think we got to we got to talk about the final scene um the the two the two train born characters um one of the ch- one of the children also one of the children um i, I love that one of the children actually ignores everything Chris Evans is saying, Curtis is saying, and gets in the front of the the system um, mm-hmm. to to take on the role for like, and I think, again, like, I think he's really trying to show that like the appeal and the allure of this is is really, really difficult to say no to. Right. And um, you can be sort of indoctrinated into it. But anyway, at the end, there is two characters left and they they are the only surviving characters that we see. They get off the train and they see the polar bear, 
and I think the polar bear and the idea of like the melting ice, I think is supposed to represent that like as much as we've been told that there is no other way possible that maybe there is. And so again, I think it all fits into that idea of like, maybe there is something else. There is another way of living. That I mean, they might, you know, it was so clear that they might as well have like melted the ice in one spot and shown like a little green piece of plant of some kind <laughs> yeah. growing. You yeah, know they didn't I mean? quite like, do that. Life has found far. life. Life has found a way, and like it's clear yeah. that like well, there will be a way. You know, we don't know that civilization will rebuild rebuild itself or things will will continue because clearly that they're just kids that are out there. Yeah, but there was a way that life survived through the harshness of all that other stuff, even when it wasn't melting, you know, even when clearly the polar bear survived or whatever their species survived through the most Arctic of Arctic winters yeah. that that was when it first hit. And um, just to sort of like put a bow on it in a way that I want to, this highlights one of the things I love most about science fiction and like super genre heavy stuff is that, on the surface, it seems like just this action flick. You know what I mean? It's just seeing a bunch of violence and some like heavy handed social commentary. Okay. But like this movie is talking about like our real world, even though we're it's set in this dystopia, right? Like it's set in this like beyond belief train, right? But yet it is talking about us. It's talking about our society. It's talking about our, our ways of living and, and our, our, uh, political and, and philosophical systems and, and structures that we used, you know, in our everyday life. And I love that you can have a story like this. Um, it kind of sneaks in, like you said, it gets past the censors. <laughs> it gets past the people who are going to take up arms and say, you can't say that. Um, Cause it's like, no, no, it's just a post-apocalyptic fun story. Yet it can be about all those other things. I don't know. I love it. Right. Me too, man. And I, again, Bong Joon-ho filmmaker to watch everything that he comes out with from now on. Yeah. Um, I can't wait for you to see some of those movies and we can have some more conversations about them. I'm excited. Uh, so we got to, we got to, come to a vote here at the end that's something we've been doing this year is deciding book or film uh we've been running super long so let's keep it fast uh yeah i mean do you want to start it's clear yeah it's clear for me movie uh seed the entire episode that we just had yeah. like it's clear like for me it's just he elevated the material and like not, not to take away from the sort of seed idea like I, yeah. like i always say from the from the book but yeah. it's the movie in this case yeah clearly um from everything i've read super important comic um super important to french uh graphic novels and and the story itself with its like nihilism and its bleakness um i think lent itself perfectly to this adaptation that itself rises above in my opinion once again i'm gonna pick the movie this time loved this movie um i was ready to come to do to, to do battle with you this week so i'm actually kind of glad that you yeah. uh it seems like you changed a little bit because I, I was like i'm gonna have to like fight for this movie because i'm not yeah. gonna i'm not well, gonna hear you like, talk about it being bad or something like i didn't know i didn't know how extreme your opinion was gonna be right so. yeah it wasn't it wasn't ever bad it wasn't ever bad <laughs> in my eyes it yeah. was it was always just the the i felt like maybe it was a little overhyped from from what you'd heard yeah but, but i'm I, I don't know like i buy it i i, I guess i i'm not sure where it sits like and i'm i think the movie does have some issues um that holds it back a little bit but ultimately this i i love this movie it was a lot of fun had a lot of great yeah. time covering it and and watching it and discussing it. So great movie. it was cool. Well, and next time somebody says next time somebody says it's in their top five of sci-fi of the last five years or ten years or whatever, I'll say yeah, I get yeah. it. Yeah, like, it's understand. like it's like I don't know if I necessarily would put it there. Maybe I would. I don't know. I'd have to think about it. But like I can see why somebody would say that. You know what I mean? Like I can see it. So anyway, um, that's going to be it. Uh, th- thank you again to Stephen E for commissioning this uh, project. Um, a lot of fun. Clearly, we had a lot of fun talking about it. Um, 
definitely check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash ink to film. If you want to find out how to support us, bonus episodes, all that good stuff. Uh, connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of those at ink to film. Join the Council of Inklings. We post polls. We post any sort of adaptation news that we see in there. And it's a good way to just stay connected. And if you like this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever podcast app you use. It's a good way to help us get the word out and keep our podcast growing. Thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right. uh, We will go ahead and announce our next project here at the end. For those of you who stuck around, thank you for doing so. Uh, We are going to be covering The Exorcist, uh, the book next week, followed by the film the week after. I know this this film I'm really excited to get to because I know there's like tons of like lore and stories about it. And it's it's supposed to be like a cursed movie. And like there's so much much cool stuff. And and people have people have different viewings that they had when they went into the theater. Apparently all kinds of crazy shit. Yeah, like it's it's legendary. I'm excited to get to the movie. But I I think there's a lot around this book, too. too, um, And we're definitely going to give it its due cover that next week so we're going to be getting back to horror which is fun because it feels like it's been a little while since we've done like a true horror so i'm excited for that hopefully you join us next week um and until next time thanks for listening